On October 20th, 1947, a congressional committee began hearings on un-American activities in the movie industry. People with unpopular political opinions were accused of subversion and lost their jobs. They were blacklisted. From Hollywood, the blacklist spread to businesses and universities, institutions and communities across the country. Thousands became the targets of denunciations, suspicion, and fear. This is the story of one man and his family and their life under the blacklist for 15 years. Blacklisted, episode two, You Don't Know My Name. Office of the Director, FBI. Early on the morning of April 8th, 1948, special agents from the Los Angeles Bureau drove past 3780 Mound View Avenue on spot surveillance. A car registered to the subject, Gordon Kahn, was seen parked in a small driveway that adjoins the home. According to a reliable informant, Kahn has been working here on a book attacking the House on American Activities Committee. Khan has been identified as a member of the Communist Party in Hollywood. Since he'd sold our home in Beverly Hills and moved us to Studio City, my father Gordon had worked day and night on Hollywood on trial. His inside story of the two weeks of House and American Activities Committee hearings under Chairman J. Parnell Thomas that had torn the movie industry apart the previous fall. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the That's basic principles the of Americanism. In October of 1947, the committee had subpoenaed 19 screenwriters and directors suspected of being members of the Communist Party. Before it adjourned, it held 10 of them in contempt for refusing to tell the committee if they belonged. As E.B. White pointed out in The New Yorker, 10 men have been convicted not of wrongdoing, but of wrong thinking. This is news in this country, and if I have not misread my history, it is bad news. If the 10 were found guilty, they'd wind up in jail for contempt. My father was writing the book to support their legal battle to stay free. He was also doing it for himself. He was one of the 19, if the committee weren't discredited, he could be the next they'd call. He didn't know it, but he was even more at risk than that. Confidential, be advised that a security index card has been prepared that the Bureau captioned Khan, Gordon, naturalized, communist, Bureau file 1003087.45. Khan is five feet two inches, 120 pounds, wears a monocle, as I learned years later when I read my father's FBI files, Che Edgar Hoover had put him on the FBI's confidential security index. In a national emergency, Hoover could send my father to one of a series of detention camps secretly approved and financed under the Truman administration. The card maintained on this individual has been tabbed dangerous. 
the Los Angeles field office is advised to make sure that surveillance of Khan is vigorous and thorough. Since the hearings the previous October, my father had been on an unofficial movie industry blacklist. <sighs> After 20 years as a screenwriter, he couldn't get a job. Dear sir, the enclosed list about covers my credits to the time I was shot out of the studios, as from a gun, and may also charitably be construed as qualification, if anyone is so inclined. X marks the spot, the death kiss, the people's enemy, all quiet on the Western Front. MGM Studios, Culver City, August 29, 1930. Barbara, dear, Hollywood reveals more wonders every day. He'd been part of that generation of New York newspaper men and playwrights, recruited at the dawn of the talkies to go west and give the movie something to say. Irving Thalberg, the biggest of the big shots here at MGM, handed me some few pounds of manuscript today, all entitled Matahari. He would like me to read them over and discuss with him a way of skimming the cream from all of them for the great Garbo. He'd made steady progress through the ranks, writing stories and cobbling dialogue for films of every kind, from love stories to society melodramas to Roy Rogers westerns. Roy, whoa! Look! What? Gold! The hills fill on it! What do you think, Trigger? Huh? Moving from studio to studio and contract to contract, like another of his characters, Tarzan, swung across the jungle, vine to vine. Anyhow, if they're not getting quality out of me, they're getting speed. Barbara, dear, if by the end of this month everything is solid here on the coast, I shall ask you to come on. Then you can remain in California until June. Then, of course, if you still want, we shall be married. He'd met Mother three years before when she was a school teacher in New Hampshire. On Valentine's Day, 1931, she joined him in Hollywood and they married at the beginning of May. You will live like a king in a palace, bright and sunny. But there's one thing in doubt that I must figure out. What's that? What'll I use for money? They experienced the high life of Hollywood's early years and almost as quickly, the plunges in fortune that made Hollywood's glass mountain so easy to see through and so difficult to climb. Layoffs and declining audiences continue to plague the movie industry. September 7, 1933. The axe is falling with a swish. The word is that 10 more writers are slated to be gone by Saturday and the rest will be kept on without a contract from week to week. I knew there was something drastic going to happen when I listened to Louis B. Mayer's economy speech last week. I'm very nervous about it all, but I'm hoping and standing on my record. Until then, Gordon had believed that hard work and talent would guarantee security and success. Now, like millions of American workers in the Great Depression of the early 1930s, he was having his doubts. The writer is the creator of motion pictures, yet the screenwriter has none of the protection, none of the dignity that has been attained in other fields. He joined the fight for Hollywood's first independent writers' union, the Screenwriters Guild. One finds cases in Hollywood of very well-known writers who are treated practically as office boys. It was the beginning of his political activity. He never told me, but if he ever did it, it was probably also the time he joined the Communist Party. Corruption where you came from! 
Now, 10 years later, the fear of communism is far worse. Somewhere in Korea, the Mustangs are on the move, and down they go to blast communist installations. The With the rise of communism in China and the Soviet blockade of Berlin, the hunt for American communists as spies and their dismissal as foreign agents had become politically popular. Even the Screenwriters Guild had joined in the search, dismissing some of the very people who had founded it, whatever the cost. The Guild Board believes that all participants in the international communist conspiracy should be exposed for what they are, enemies of our country and our form of government hereby authorizes its board to turn over to House Un-American Activities Committee investigators all previously confidential union meeting records. We don't like the idea of going to prison our personal lives, our families, our work are as important to us as to anyone else. To explain to a child of 7, 10, or 12 why his father must go to prison, no, it's not easy. In June of 1950, the 10 issued a final defense of their right to resist the House and American Activities Committee and a warning to those who didn't. We are aware of a developing nightmare of fear in our land in which increasing numbers of citizens are being forced to swear, I am not this, I am not that, I don't belong to anything, I don't believe in anything, I don't criticize anything. Educators being fired, film studios enlisting in the Cold War, labor leaders being framed on perjured testimony, lawyers sent to prison for defending their clients. In April of 1950, the, the Supreme Court decided not to review the contempt convictions of the Hollywood Ten. Ten of us are going to prison casualties of the Cold War. How many more will there be? There need be no more. That depends on you. Truly, it depends on you. Now, in the summer of 1950, for refusing to reveal your political affiliations and beliefs to a congressional committee, you could be fined $1,000 and sent to jail. A month earlier, mother had gone back east for hip surgery. While she recuperated at her father's home in New Hampshire, my older brother Jim and I had Gordon to ourselves. It was a topsy-turvy time. I didn't understand anything about politics, but I knew my father didn't go to work anymore, and unlike other fathers, was home all the time. He played games with us. He let us take turns sleeping with him at night. He let me stay home from kindergarten once or twice because my temperature was normal. He seemed to want us near him all the time. August 9, 1950. Barbara, darling, there is no doubt I am the next victim of whatever move is made by the authorities. My subversive activity goes back to the day I was elected to the board of directors of the Screenwriters Guild in 1941, to my work for the Writers' Congress as a collaborator of a notorious red named Franklin D. Roosevelt, and finally the publication of Hollywood on Trial.
This last seems to have infuriated them more than anything. I get a cold chill when I think of what will happen if tomorrow or the next day a man comes with a warrant for me. What will I do with the boys? What will they do without me? Even now, the idea of my leaving the house gets your sister Janet a little panicky. She worries about the neighbors, and they are something to worry about, too. We were separated from our neighbors by a rotting wooden fence covered in ivy. Their son, Tommy, a tall, thin boy Jim's age, regularly threatened to beat me up for being a communist, though not nearly so often as his parents beat him for what seemed like nothing at all. I managed to avoid Tommy most of the time. Jim was not so lucky. Stop pushing me! You're a commie and your father's a traitor! <laughs> One day after school, Tommy and Jim had the biggest fight the kids on the block had ever seen. They traded punches up and down the yard, knocking each other down and rolling in the dirt, just like in the movies. Jim had the advantage, 20 pounds, and a towering rage I could feel in the pit of my own stomach. At the end, Tommy lay beneath him, bleeding and begging for mercy. Jim got up and walked back to the house. My father stood in the doorway, holding a cool, wet washcloth to clean Jim's bloody nose. Then, his arm draped gently around Jim's shoulder. My father let him inside and closed the door. It's all right. It was a moment I'll never forget, and one Jim never remembered. Jim recalls he walked inside alone. Jim was eight and I was five, and maybe I was the one imagining things. Even though I can still see my father there in the doorway, it's possible I saw a ghost, a lingering image of a man who had already disappeared. Urgent, the Los Angeles office has advised that Khan was issued a tourist card on August 14 for a six-month trip to Mexico. The same day, Subject contacted his bank in Hollywood and withdrew $2,000. Neighbors report Khan drives a Chrysler 6 four-door sedan, California license. August 1950, dearest Barbara, on Monday night, when the service of a subpoena was almost certain, I decided to get out pronto. It was no use waiting that extra day or two, and not even that extra hour. I came home via the alley, parked quietly in the garage, then went inside and tossed together whatever I could lay my hands upon. When it actually came time to leave, I couldn't. Well, I can't even write about it now. I just went to pieces for, I think, the first and, I hope, the last time in my life. I had to leave them then, or not at all. He came into our room, I'm told, kissed us goodbye, and told us a lie. He said he was going to San Francisco so that if anyone asked us, we wouldn't give him away. Then, leaving us with my aunt, Janet Brody, and a young woman named Dorothy Ottens, who'd worked for the family for years, he jumped in the car and fled to Mexico. 
I can't find the words to tell you how miserable I feel that things have come to such a pass. I keep seeing their faces and yours, darling, every mile of the trip. But I'll see you all and hold you all in my arms very soon. And don't worry, things ahead should work out for us. I think we have it coming. Be on the lookout for one Gordon Kahn, Jewish, five feet, one inch, 125 pounds, a facial resemblance similar to that of Lenin. No protest met the news today that eight new radical screen artists received subpoenas to appear before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Still on two crutches and barely able to stand, Mother rushed back from New Hampshire to help take care of Jim and me. Two of the suspected communists, Gordon Kahn, writer, and Frank Tuttle, director, are reported to be out of the country. The committee was back, too, to resume its investigation of communism in Hollywood and to pick up where it had left off nearly three years before. Mother had checked to see how much she could get for the house, but with my father blacklisted and a fugitive, the offers had been insultingly low. Years later, Mother told me, two of her more frequent callers during that time were FBI agents, young, clean-cut men in hats, asking if she was ready to tell them where her husband was. You know I have nothing to say to you. She was determined to show them nothing, neither her anger nor her fear that next time they might be coming for her. Certain the line was tapped, Gordon and Mother didn't call each other on the phone. Even letters were kept to a minimum and mailed through third parties in Mexico and the United States. Dearest, it is pretty hard for me to say that I am helpless when it comes to any problem of any sort. I have always managed to solve them and straighten things out, and I shall yet out of this difficulty. Keep that beautiful chin up for my sake, sweetheart, and maybe by tomorrow I will be able to give you some news. Until then, precious, think of me and love me just as I love you, which I'm telling you is a whole lot more than anybody can imagine. Thinking that Jim, at age eight, was old enough to keep a secret, Mother told him his father was safe in Mexico. It was a mistake. My father had told us he was going to San Francisco. My father always told the truth. It was decided that as soon as she could sell the house and my father could find us a place, we'd join him in Mexico. Until then, she didn't say a word to us about their plans. To be safe, she never spoke his name. After a while, I thought he'd probably died. Hello? 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 Mr. Chairman? I'd like to call Mr. Large Parks. When the committee resumed its hearings in March of 1951, one of the first people called was an old friend of ours, Larry Parks, one of the 19. In 1941, being a member of the Communist Party fulfilled certain needs of a young man that was uh, liberal in thought, 
who was for the, the underdog. He was prepared now to tell the committee he had once been a member of the Communist Party. He learned that was no longer enough. Are you acquainted with Karen Morley? I am. Is she a member of the Communist Party? Counsel, I would prefer, if you will allow me, not to mention other people's names. Oh, so when we're drafting men to fight communist aggression overseas, you feel that it is not your duty as an American citizen to give the committee the benefit of what knowledge you might have? Witnesses subpoenaed by the committee were now expected not just to renounce their past, but to name others the committee could call. I, for one, am rather curious to understand just what the reasons are in your mind for declining to answer the question. Now, you say you would readily give information concerning a man you have knowledge has committed murder. Wouldn't you also give information to the proper authorities of a man you knew or a woman you knew or believed to be working to overthrow our government by force and violence? I think that there is a difference, Congressman. There's a difference between people who would harm our country and people like myself, who, as I feel, did nothing wrong at the time. You see what it says, Jim? Can you read it? Look. Needles. That spring, Mother called Jim and me into a room early one morning and gave us each a silver coin. Mexico. Mexico. We were going to Mexico soon, she told us, and with this money called pesos, we could buy ourselves new toys. I asked her if Mexicans spoke English. She said I shouldn't worry, I'd be speaking Spanish in no time. Did they at least laugh like other people I wanted to know? Yes, she said, like people everywhere on Earth. Now, go and play. <laughs> I felt bad, I'd asked. <laughs> Mr. Fox, I direct you to answer the question. Who were the members of the Communist Party cell to which you were assigned during the period from 1941 until 1945? Mr. Chairman, I have two boys. One 13 months, one two weeks. Is this the kind of heritage that I must hand down to them? Don't, Don't present, present me with, me the, with choice the choice of, of either being, either being in contempt of this committee and going to jail, or forcing me to crawl through the mud to be an informer. I, I beg you not to force me to do this. On my last day at school that April, my first grade class celebrated my sixth birthday a little early. And as a special treat, I got to have recess with the older kids. We played dodgeball. I'd never been very good at getting out of the way of the ball, but that day, I was exceptional. After a few minutes, I was the only one left in the middle, running back and forth, dodging everything they could throw at me. I seemed possessed of an exhilarating power to escape and an overwhelming fear of being caught. I think what inspired me was a fantasy I'd been having every time I left the house. I'm walking down the street when the police sweep me up, take me to the station and put me under a strong light. I don't know what I've done wrong, but to make them like me, I eagerly tell them everything they want to know. Years later, Jim told me he'd had a recurring fantasy too. He's cornered by a semicircle of G-men, their hats pulled low over their faces, looking exactly like the criminals they chase. 
He looks back at them, angry, frightened, and silent. Fire! As they empty their guns into him. Hello, darling. What sweet baby. Earlier that day, Mother had gotten a ride to her best friends to bring her new baby a gift to remember her by. They'd been neighbors in Beverly Hills, and her husband Leo and my father had been active together in politics. Leo had stayed in his office that day, working on a script, and come out to say goodbye, only his mother was about to be driven back. You don't know Barbara, do you? As they pulled away, the woman who drove Mother over told her that, like Larry Parks, Leo had just gone before the committee in executive session and given it the names of 40 people, some of them his closest friends. State to legal attaché Mexico City to director CIA. Gentlemen, it appears without doubt that Khan is in Mexico at this time. A reliable informant reports that his son stated at school that the subject is in Mexico as he does not like the United States, adding that the family was also moving there to join him. We shall appreciate being apprised of any information which may come to your attention in the future concerning these individuals. Gordon Kahn, Barbara Kahn, Tony. James Kahn, Jim. Anthony Kahn, Janet Brody, and that such information be regarded as strictly confidential and not furnished to anyone outside your service. Sincerely, J. Edgar Hoover, Director, FBI. Was Morris Karnofsky a member? Yes. Was Joe Bromberg a member? Yes. Sam Rossen? Yes. Lee Cobb? Yes. Thank you, Mr. Parks. We appreciate your cooperation. You are excused. Blacklisted, Episode 2, You Don't Know My Name, was performed by Ron Liebman as Gordon Kahn, Stockard Channing as Barbara Kahn, Carol O'Connor as J. Edgar Hoover, and Tony Kahn as the narrator. The cast also featured Eli Wallach, John Randolph, Jerry Stiller, Martin Mull, Constance McCashin, Sam Wiseman, Julie Halston, Susan Stamberg, Daniel Shore, Andrew Kahn, Jeremy Dufault, Jesse Dufault, Lainey Zira, your announcer is Will Lyman. Blacklisted was produced, written, and directed by Tony Khan. Co-producer for Blacklisted is Harriet Risen. Associate producers are Sonny Dufault, Spencer Weisbroth, and Eileen Silverstone. Chief engineer is Kevin McLaughlin. Original music was composed and performed by Bill Bokheim. Major funding for this program came from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with additional support from the National Endowment for the Arts, 
the Massachusetts Foundation for the Humanities and the Threshold Foundation, and with production help from KCRW Santa Monica and WBUR Boston. Blacklisted is a production of Tony Khan Productions, which is solely responsible for its content. This podcast of Blacklisted is sponsored by Audible.com, where you can download over 40,000 audiobooks, magazines, radio shows, and more. To download a free audiobook today, go to Audible.com.